0: Hello, welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. How many people out there have felt their inner power grow as they age? I know I have. I feel like a better version of myself, even though I'm well into my 50s. I may not look as good, but I don't really give a shit anymore, and that's real freedom. As you age, you get better at letting go, of not taking things too personally, and you're more apt to forgive others as you've come to know your own shortcomings with more clarity and a sense of shared humanity. And older people, if they've done some inner work, will have right-sized the ego. There's less of a heaviness about them that the ego brings. Years of living will tend to have shown you that it's not all about you. It never really was. Additionally, our elders hold the wisdom for the tribe, and this has always been so. As we enter into our next phase, and as the Great Awakening moves through humanity, it will be the wisdom keepers that will be desperately needed, and I am proud to call myself one. In our collective narrative and in any hero's journey, the mentor to the central character is always an elder. This is not by accident. And my guest today speaks of the gifts of slowing down and the power of embracing aging as an adventure or a hero's journey, to use my own language. I love people who show us a different, more elevated perspective, and my guest today is just that. Enjoy the interview. Carl Honore is an author, broadcaster, two-time TED speaker, and the voice of the slow movement. After working with street children in Brazil, he covered Europe and South America for The Economist, Observer, and other publications. His best-selling books are published in 35 languages. Here is my interview with Carl Honore. Okay, I am here with Carl Honore, author and TED speaker, Carl Honore. Carl, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks, it's great to be with you. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I first got... uh, Aware of you. I, I read, you have a number of books. You're, you're a pretty prolific writer and a good writer, I might add. Uh, I read In Praise of Slow and Under Pressure, Putting the Child Back in Childhood, both excellent, excellent reads and very relevant. And, but I first became aware of you on a TED talk that I saw you give uh, called In Praise of Slowness. And I thought it was a really interesting topic. I'm always looking for uh, stuff for my listeners that is maybe a little counter narrative. And it was such a great uh, talk. And in it, you know, you had this kind of wake up call uh, when you were sort of uh, getting ready to read your your child, uh, The Cat in the Hat. And I'll let you take it from there because I think it's kind of a, it made me laugh out loud. Um, <laughs> and I thought, what a fantastic wake up call. And that led to a lot of uh, the unpacking of this philosophy of slowness and the art of slowness. So, so what happened as you were getting ready to read your son? I think it was, right?
1: It was my son, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I, think, I think just broadly, w- when we get stuck in fast forward, it often takes a shock to the system or some kind of wake up call. And for most people, I think that comes in the form of an illness. The body one day says, nope no dice, can't take the pressure, the pace anymore, and you have a burnout or some kind of illness or something. My wake-up call came, as you say, when I started reading bedtime stories to my son. And I just, you know, I would go into his room at the end of the day, and I I was just incapable of slowing down. So I'd sit on his bed with one foot on the floor and speed read Snow White, right? You know, and I'm skipping (laughs) lines, paragraphs. I became an expert in what I called the multiple page turn technique, which I don't know if any parents out there will probably recognize is horribly familiar. You know, you try and smuggle two or three, and it never works right because my kids know these stories inside out. So my son will always catch me say, you know, Daddy, why are there only three dwarves in the story tonight? (laughs) 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 What happened to to Grumpy? And this really lamentable state of affairs went on for a really long time, actually. But it it went on until I caught myself flirting with buying a book I'd heard about called The One Minute Bedtime Story. So Snow White and other tales boiled down to 60-second chunks. And I remember Mm -hmm. thinking, Hallelujah, right? What a great idea, I need that book now. Amazon, drone delivery. But then, light bulb over the head, I just thought, whoa, what's happening here? I really, am I really prepared to fob off my little boy with a soundbite instead of a story? And I just realized that I'd lost my way, and lost my compass, and that was, uh, that was the moment of searing epiphany, right? The kind of wake-up call, and I realized I just, I, I, I'd become a, a roadrunner. Every moment of my life had become a race against the clock, and I, I needed to relearn the lost art of slowness. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean,
0: did you have you noticed? I mean, you you were kind of a, a, a thought leader in this, um, because you did this many many years ago. I know that you know, I lead men's groups and workshops in this pandemic, actually, um, everybody had to slow down, right? So, yeah, it was like a forced wake up call. I just noticed well, I'm not going to the office. There's not a lot of work right now. Um, And what am I going to do? And I just found myself, whoa, everything got a lot slower. I started doing more meditation. I started getting out into nature because everything was closed. I couldn't go out and do my normal stuff. And I became really sort of painfully conscious that I had a lot of distractions, buying stuff, going out, uh, hitting all these different places just as part of my routine. And none of it was really necessary. It was just what I was used to creating this kind of busy schedule. Did you did you have the same sense with the pandemic over there in Europe? Where did you notice a lot of forced slowdown, and did were people
1: commenting on it? Very much. I think I think the world has gone through a kind of forced slowness workshop, right? It's yeah, yeah. Thrust, thrust upon us more than three days too. Yeah, was, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I, I and I would not have wished this on the world. It was funny when the pandemic first hit. I just got bombarded by emails and messages, people saying, you must be so happy. The world's been forced to slow down. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, this pandemic is a total nightmare and an ordeal for everybody in all kinds of ways. So I did not wish this on the world. But right. the fact is, it's happened. And I do think that there are some silver linings. And I think you put your finger on the key one there, which is that over the last, what are we now, seven, eight months deep into this? Yep. We've, most of us have spent the last eight months you know, doing less, maybe working less, rushing less, consuming less, contaminating and polluting less, uh, spending less time in artificial environments, more time in nature. And you know what? I think a lot of us are saying, this is actually kind of nice. You know, every moment of my day is no longer a dash to the finish line, right? You know, I'm not constantly juggling 15 things. I've got time just to decompress, time to do nothing, you know, and, and maybe not even feel bad about doing nothing. Right. And I think it's been a real eye-opener for a lot of people. And so you see, you mentioned you take have taken up meditation. I mean, right across the world, people are going back to slower, simpler pursuits like board games. Look at the sourdough bread baking boom. Yeah. People are taking up crafts and knitting and making music and just simply being in nature again, right? All very simple, slow things that have been there all the time, but that kind of got pushed to the margins in our headlong dash to consume and spend and do more and more and less and less time which is this whole roadrunner culture that the pandemic has collided with
0: absolutely i mean one thing my family did i have a 13 year old son and my wife and we found ourselves doing jigsaw puzzles we're not a jigsaw puzzle family at all but (laughs) it was super fun spending all that time trying to put together a puzzle we did like probably four of them during the the first part of the pandemic and it was just we just commented like this is really nice just to kind of you know, not be looking at our phones, not be multitasking, and just kind of farting around a jigsaw puzzle was really, really cool.
1: I, 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 I love jigsaw puzzles. In fact, yeah. in fact I, I made a TV show in in Australia called uh, Frantic Family Rescue, where I got f- very fast wired overwrought families for a month and had to slow them down. And one thing I do with every family in that show is I get them to do a big puzzle on the kitchen table, right? 500 pieces minimum up to a thousand. And it's great. just extraordinary. It's exactly what you described there. It becomes an oasis of calm. It's like a Zen sanctuary in the home. It just becomes this magnet that draws people together, sometimes alone to do it in in, in contemplative silence, sometimes in groups, sometimes talking, sometimes stuff, just being together. And I think that there's so much that we've lost in this, obsession with doing right we've become human doings and i think what the pandemic has allowed us and forced us in some ways to do is sometimes just to sit still and be right mm-hmm. and i think a lot of us are rediscovering the joy of simply being absolutely well and and how
0: how did we arrive at this place where you know it went from pursuing the good life which we were all trained and conditioned to do how did it become The the fast life or the multitasking life. I mean, was it just technology that drove it? I mean, how did we arrive there? How did we arrive at a place where we all sense that we're running too fast, like reading our children bedtime stories in one minute, or trying to um, always having the phones going.
1: I think there's a whole kind of confluence of historical cultural trends that go way back. I mean, it just when we when man started. Measuring time, even with sundials, you know, back in the Roman times. As soon as people began parceling up time and measuring it, they began to worry about the clock. Suddenly, you were on the clock. That means you had a deadline. That means you had to move quickly to get from A to B. You couldn't be late. And then, of course, you know, you get med- medieval times with real clocks and timepieces and villages, and suddenly everyone has a schedule to follow. You get into the modern industrial era where time is money, right? That mm-hmm. phrase that sounds so modern actually yep. came from Benjamin Franklin, right, 250 years ago. And and that whole ethos that somehow time is always running away from us, you've got to speed up, cram it with more and more stuff to get the most out of your time, just came to define not only factory life, but every aspect of life. Yeah. And then I think two other things have happened. One is the world has become this extraordinary smorgasbord of consumerism, things to buy and eat and, you know, experience and own. And we just want the natural human instinct is to want to have it all, which naturally leads to hurrying it all. You mentioned Uh, tech. I think tech has obviously helped us do things faster, but it's almost like a cherry on the cake in the last 20 years with the, the last final, I think, acceleration of social media and all these gadgets that allow us to be always on wherever you are anywhere on the planet. I think that's kind of the final turn of the screw if you like of mm-hmm. speed is, is the tech so I, I wouldn't blame tech in the early days I think there are other cultural things that are underlying this that's a good point
0: that's a good point I mean I think y- you bring up uh, in one of your books that there's it's time is not always measured in such a linear way that it's really driven by what you just said the industrial uh technological age the west drives this kind of time is is scarce um so you got to hustle um but there's other there's other cultures right where there's more wisdom where there's it's more slow um slow doesn't mean dumb actually in these cultures slow means um carrying wisdom, carrying earth wisdom. So you have to go into Mm -hmm. maybe places like Tibet or India or maybe the Aborigines or some of the indigenous um, tribes where, you know, if I happen to catch an indigenous something on television, on a documentary, I'm just stunned at their lack of awareness of linear time. They've got forever to do something, right? And I'm like, wow, what? And I'm just struck with how elegant they are and how natural and relaxed and and how radiant they look, you know, they don't look beaten down by time, you know, and it's, it's, yeah. it's striking. I don't know if you looked under the hood of any of the cultures in any of your research to say, hey, who, who's really doing uh, time in a way that's not linear, but I I'm struck with just a little I've seen about that.
1: So I think it's very true that traditional cultures definitely across the globe have more often than not tended to regard time as, as circular or cyclical, mm-hmm. right? It's always Yes, as it flows away from you, it's flowing back and renewing itself, replenishing itself. So it becomes the element that you you float in, right? The, the air you breathe, in a sense. Whereas in the West, we have this very linear times arrow flying remorselessly from A to B, which just infuses every moment of the day with panic, right? Because <laughs> you just think you have to, or what they call hurry sickness, the idea you've got to pedal faster and faster to keep up with all those seconds and minutes draining away. There was a wonderful phrase that, going back to the colonial era when europeans went off to colonize africa that apparently sort of local people in africa would say you know you europeans um you have the clock but we have the time and i thought there was a a lovely little nifty reversal there you know the, the clock seems to be a kind of almost a macho mechanistic way of being in the world and the other way of being is more gentle it's more you I love the words you use radiant and it's more elegant i love i love the fact you put your finger on elegance because i think when you think of a gentleman what when, when you think of a, a man who's a gentleman the, the, one of the defining characteristics of a gentleman an elegant gentleman is that he is never rushed right, right. never he always has time yep. time is on his side time is his his friend not his enemy and it's the same in sports all the greatest athletes whether it's you know i'm a big hockey player same in football all the greatest athletes the one thing that unites them all is that they never are rushed. They always have enough time, even in the midst of a, a, you know, a play of extraordinary speed and vertiginous yep. shifting sands. They can always yep. find a solid place to stand and enough time to play the killer pass or you know, sink that basket or whatever it is, right? They're never rushed. They're, they're fast, but they're not rushed. And there's a very important nuance there.
0: Absolutely. I need, when they when you talk to like world class quarterbacks in the NFL, for instance, and they they will say, you know, how did you how did you make this play or whatever? They'll often say it it seems like time is slowing down in those moments. Yeah. That it's it's like everything's moving slow. I've got all the time in the world, you know, it's slow mo and I'm really relaxed. And you're just like, wow, that's that's quite the training, but also being so present in the moment that you're not rushed at something. I wanted to ask you one of the things, I don't know if you still have kind of an edge. I, I've noticed in myself where this busyness and roadrunner gets in my way or where I've got work to do to develop myself is in my listening. I noticed that I still want people to hurry up and get to the point. Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and that includes my wife, God bless her, and my son. Sometimes I'm just like, you know, hurry up and finish this thought or unpack this story in a way that's concise rather than like you said earlier that a gentleman will give people time and not rush. Right. And I still notice it creeps in this roadrunner creeps in when I'm listening to often my loved ones, uh, you know, report something, tell me a story, you know, I want to hurry up and get to the point. And so that's something that for me, I have, I have work to do in that area because that's not an elegant way to live And it's telling them it's perpetuating the roadrunner, right? Because they sense that I'm not really being patient in my listening. So if I want a real revolution in the art of slowness, which I do, because I I really resonate with your philosophy, then my my work is to slow down in my listening and not be in such a damn hurry to get to the point because that's just not working.
1: Yeah, I I I hear you there because I can fall into that trap as well. I mean, I've been doing this work for you know years now, and, and you know no one is a paragon of slowness. I'm sure even the Dalai Lama rushes sometimes, right? <laughs> That'd be funny to see. Right? <laughs> Come on, hurry up! I got <laughs> places to be. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> it's like the Tibet minute, right? Yeah. Um, I, I I I sometimes find myself often it's because I'm very gregarious and I love sitting around the table and chatting, and you, you get excited and you 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 suddenly a, a thought. Burst into your head and you want to share it instantly. So someone else is taking a long time to unfurl an anecdote or to nail home a point. You just begin to think, or I begin to think sometimes, please hurry up. I've got this really good, you know, observation I want to throw in or a good joke or a, so yeah, I I, I think that's probably a pretty common phenomenon. I I try to, I mean, I try to be aware of it and- a few deep breaths and there are kind of techniques you can do you can make yourself or train yourself to repeat in your own head what people are saying to you or say it back to them in your own words and that that can kind of take you out of yourself yeah um and into the shared space which i think can be a place of communion right where you find the tempo where you're you enter into that sacred dance together which is conversation dialogue absolutely absolutely you you mentioned in in your book under pressure putting the child back in childhood
0: you mentioned that a common pattern. I see this a lot um, here in Seattle um, that there's these overachieving kids that are being driven, you know, this kind of go, 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 this roadrunner culture is being um, sort of uh, forced on them as well by well-meaning parents, but also parents that are looking to build the child's future. So the children end up with really good resume but you point out there's often something missing in these children. And um, what is it that you notice if children are being driven to go, go, go and build a resume at a young age? What is it sometimes that doesn't get developed or doesn't get expressed in
1: them? I think there are a lot of things I would I put my finger on first uh Creativity, right? I and mean, we know that there's a, a an intimate bond between slowness and creativity, and that children need the time and space to explore the world on their own terms, to to get bored, even, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is, but boredom is is is. I mean, it's become the kind of majestic sin of the 21st century. How can you be bored? There's so much entertainment around you. And for most of human history, when a child was bored, it came to a parent and said, "I'm bored." That was the child's problem, right? You know, your mom or your dad would say, well, too bad, go outside, find a friend. Or they'd use that immortal phrase, use your imagination. (laughs) Now, child comes to a parent and says, I'm bored. And the parent feels, oh no, I'm failing as a mom or a dad, right? My kid's bored. Where's the iPad? Maybe we need another extracurricular in the schedule. But no, you need to back off, slow down and let the boredom happen. Because it's in those moments of unstructured time, of not knowing what's coming next, of not having test targets or timetables all around you, that that's when children learn how to, how to think, how to innovate, how to create, how to use their imagination, right? And I think if you're if you're boxed into a pillar to post childhood where you're hot-housed every moment of your day, you're on a schedule, you have no space to develop those creative muscles. So yeah. I think that's one thing you lose. Just a couple other things I'll throw into the mix. I think you also lose a sense of who you are because it's when you are off the clock, you're letting your mind wander, you daydream, you're just playing without adults, telling you how to play, free play. That's when you can look in to yourself and work out who you are rather than what your parents and everyone else expect you to be and i think a lot of kids just get they put their heads down and they go right and they tick the boxes they get out the other end they get the incredible grades then they get away from the home they go to university college first year and they're they're falling apart yeah. in record numbers in first year they're they're suddenly waking up with a bit of time and space and they're saying you know what i don't want to be a lawyer or I don't want to study, um, I don't even want to be at university. I want to go off and work in nature or whatever. And and so you're getting them changing courses and record numbers, also lacking that emotional resilience because that's something else that you build, children build when they're off the clock, when they're just playing freely, when they're kind of letting their minds wander and exploring the world at their own rate. They build up that emotional resilience we're always being told is so important. And I think that also probably helps explain the kind of epidemic of mental health problems we're seeing in young people as well. That's gotta be part of that equation too. So a lot of things get sacrificed on the altar of raising the perfect child.
0: Well, and then one thing we do by doing that too, is we really implement, even when parents are meaning well, uh, is we implement this agenda that that is not theirs. And it's like you said, if they never get a chance to be with themselves, be bored, uh, have space, um, have to figure some things out. they don't really learn how to navigate with their own compass. They're, the compass is being um, uh, forced on them in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So like you said they don't they don't actually get to know how they feel about anything because they're not given time and space to sort of feel like huh you know to daydream to come up with their own uh, dreams about what may be coming what would they what they want for their
1: lives. Um, Maybe that's why so many young people are taking their 20s now to do yeah, that. Ex, yeah. That ex, They're doing that existential homework in their 20s yeah. because they didn't have time in their teens and earlier years, right? They're, they're yeah. suddenly, they're, they're off the clock. They, they can whip out their own compass and start looking at it and trying to make sense of it, right? And so they take their 20s to work it out.
0: Yep, absolutely. You gave a great TED talk that I listened to called Why We Should Embrace Aging as an Adventure. And it really jumped out, it caught my attention. So I was like, what a great, what a great topic. And I know you wrote about this too um, in Boulder, making the most of our longer lives, which is fantastic. And I guess I wanted to just start with what what are some of the harms of ageism? There's ageism galore. I live in a tech city here on the West Coast. And, you know, there's almost a sense of like, if you're over 40, you don't have anything to offer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so absurd because I know so many brilliant, intelligent, wise, uh, older People that are, you know, when I say older, I don't even consider over forty to be that old. Um, I know people that are in in terrific shape, mentally, spiritually, physically, and are in their prime, and they're in their sixties and seventies. Right? They they're they're full of exactly, wisdom. Yeah. So so I guess what are what are some of the pitfalls of this kind of youth culture uh, that we worship, where it's like the young people are going to have all the solutions and all the brightest ideas, and older people have nothing to offer because they're older. You know.
1: Sure. Well, I think the pitfalls, you can kind of break them into two camps, right? Or two boxes. The first would be the personal and the other would be collective. The personal is that, and this is the one thing that really blew me away in the research, is that it's pretty clear that ageism or buying into the cult of youth, the idea that younger is always better and that it's all downhill from whatever, 35 or 40, is actually bad for us, right? They've shown that if you if you do swallow this idea that, it's all, that, that aging will be bad, aging will be bad. In other words, you're going to increase your chances of suffering from cognitive and physical decline. You're more likely to get dementia and you're even likely to die younger, up to seven and a half years younger. So ageism in that sense for each of us individually is the ultimate act of self-harm, right? So buying into the cult of youth, you're doing yourself physical and emotional and spiritual harm. On the collective side, just think of all the roads left untraveled, all the doors left unopened because so many people are hearing And paying heed to that little voice in the back of their mind whispering, you're too old for this, right? Right, When it's patently untrue. As you've said, you know, people in their 60s and 70s, people can in many ways reach their prime in so many different ages and there are things that get better as we get older you know in the workplace we get better at um, you know seeing connections seeing the big picture weighing multiple viewpoints working in teams understanding how things fit together you know there's so many things that we can bring to the party in the workplace alone right never mind the rest of society that improve as we get older and a society that says you know what you're finished at 40 is just cutting itself off at the knees, right? It's, right. it's, it's shutting the door on all of this vast reservoir of potential uh, that could, you know, lift all of our boats. You know, whatever age we are.
0: What are, What are some of the myths that are or stereotypes around older people that we have to live with? And is it true that it's miserable to age? That people get less happy the older they get?
1: Well, that's, of course, that's what the culture tells us, right? That if you think of the words we use to describe older people, it's kind of grumpy, crotchety, miserable, you know, all that stuff. But actually, the statistics show very clearly across the world that human beings follow what's called a U-shaped happiness curve, meaning we start high in childhood, we slide down to bottom out in middle age, and then we bounce back up again. So, you know, the highest levels of life satisfaction and happiness tend to be reported by the over 55s, right? Which goes totally counter to what... um, what the culture tells us, which is you know you better have all your fun now, right? Because after 30, man, or 40, it's all doom and gloom. Well, untrue. I mean, patently untrue. And, and you know, one of the things I think that we gain as we get older, and that feeds into and probably explains this U-shaped happiness curve, is that as you get older, you we tend to feel less beholden to other people's expectations, less worried about what they think. So yeah. um, you know, there's a great quote from Ann Landers, the old you know famous. Um, Agni Ann, she said, at 20, we worry about what other people think of us. At 40, we stop worrying about what other people think of us. Mm-hmm. But then at 60, we realize that they were never thinking about us at all, right? And yeah. I think what that gets at is that that kind of lightness or freedom that comes upon us in later life, where we just... We just don't care so much what other people think. We're able exactly. to let the stuff go that doesn't light us up, streamline and focus on the things that really put fire in our belly and a smile on our face. And, you know, that's the essence of a life well-lived is that kind of approach. And it's something that comes to all of us naturally as we get older. Like Carl Jung famously said, life really begins at 40. Everything up until then is just homework, just research. Yeah,
0: that's fantastic. That's fantastic. In your book, Boulder, uh, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives, what are what are some of the things that you know, I'm 54. I'm making my way. What are some things I need to know as I as I creep into older age that uh, that are in your book, or that insights, or 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 you know, any bits of wisdom that you want to share with us around getting older? Like, how do I maximize that? You know, I'm I'm excited about it. I I'm I'm embracing your philosophy of you know treating aging as a hero's journey or as a as a adventure because it sure has been. And uh, yeah, uh, I I'm down. So what what do I need to know with it?
1: Well I tell you what I, I wish I'd written bolder 20 years ago because it would have saved me 20 years of dread existential mm. angst and horror uh, and there's because there's so and there also it would allow me to do things to make sure that I live better and age better the two things being two sides of the same coin. Well, one thing is staying curious, you know, keeping your mind open, trying to learn new things. I mean, th- that old that's another myth about older people, you know, you know the old saying you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's not even true of dogs, yeah. And it's certainly not true of human beings. Right. So it's, it's so important to keep exposing yourself to novelty, trying new stuff out. That keeps you fresh. It keeps you alive. It keeps you vibrant. It keeps you well. And it's going to help you age better. So stay curious, stay open. Approach life is a process of opening doors instead of closing them. Nice. Uh, a second thing is, and this is an important point, I think, especially in this pandemic moment, is the importance of social connection, right? That, we, you know, loneliness can be as bad for us in terms of health and all that stuff you know aging as 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 smoking and being an obesity you know so try and maintain social connections one thing we tend to do as we get older is we tend to streamline we have fewer social connections but if we play our cards right those connections are deeper more meaningful more enriching and keep us healthier so Try not to sort of retreat. It's harder in these pandemic times to try not to retreat into a social shell. Throw yourself out there as much as you can and and stay connected socially. So those would be two things I would say that all of us can start doing now, right? Absolutely. To make sure we, we get the most out of our, whatever years we have left
0: yeah yeah what if we want to sort of push back against ageism what are some cliches or phrases that maybe we want to be mindful of uh so we're not putting out um you know we're not fanning the flames of ageism and maybe even call out some of our friends and family if they utter some stuff around aging and just say hey you know uh what what are some that we need to watch language is such
1: an important place to start right because I mean, uh, wittgenstein famously said the limit of my Language is the limit of my world, right? How The words yeah. we use shape how we feel, the people around us feel about their lives and, and the world itself. So let's stop using those ageist phrases yeah. like uh, senior moment, right? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, yeah, which just sort of says that as soon as you get past a certain age, your memories all... That's just not true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or feeling my age, showing my age, the wrong side of 40. There's no wrong side of 40, right? right. There's just right. before 40 and after 40. Uh, finished at 40, finished at 50. All of these phrases that just reinforce the myth, the toxic myth that aging is all downhill. So just check your language. Aging's a bitch. I hear that sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, but of course, you don't want to be sort of Pollyanna. You've got to take a a nuanced, open-minded approach and accept that some things about aging do kind of suck. Of course they do, but that's Uh, not the whole story, right? Not by a long shot. Exactly. It's a mixed picture and many things will stay the same and some will even get better, right? That's the thing to hold on to.
0: Absolutely. Well, Carl, are there any creative projects you'd like our listeners to know about that's coming up? This episode's going to come out in a week or two. Um, so, what do you got coming up that you'd like uh, listeners to know?
1: I've, I actually have something coming out now, which is thanks to the pandemic, I've finally put together a workbook, a How to Slow Down workbook. I've been wanting to do it for years, but just never found the time or or the bandwidth. I, I found both during the pandemic, and so it's called Thirty Days to Slow. Mm. And I'll be launching it in the next sometime in November. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I would I'm just literally putting the last touches on it. It's going to be uploaded tomorrow probably so it's cool. all kind of happening it's very exciting and i've got a i'm going to run boot camps that people can do the 30 days i'll do it with them and stuff i'm not quite sure how that's going to work yet but uh Fantastic. i'm very I'm thrilled it's going to be the kind of companion book that in praise of slow or in the u.s the book is called a praise of slowness same book different title yep um in praise of slow with 30 days or so the perfect um kind of one two hit the perfect tag team and i've always wanted to do it and this has been one of the silver linings for me of the pandemic is to get this this baby out the door
0: that's great. Well, we'll look for that. That'll be exciting to see that. And it's coming in the holiday season. So people can actually purchase that and maybe part of a Christmas present or something like that as well. So A, a slow Christmas. A slow, be better? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Carl, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for all the great work you've done um, to open our eyes to slowness, to open our eyes to, uh, you know ageism. And, you know, I just, I love your writing. I love your content and your philosophy. So come back and talk to us again when you got some other stuff coming up, but uh, thank you again. It's uh, your work's really made a difference in how we see and approach our lives.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a treat from start to finish. Hope to, hope to chat with you again sometime.
0: Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed our time with Carl. If you're interested in building a better and slower life, which sounds great to me, You can find tools for this in Carl's online course. And to find this in his books and TED Talks, go to www.carlhonore.com. That's C-A-R-L-H-O-N-O-R-E.com. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac and you're listening to Basecamp for Men.